Welcome to um, another episode of Supreme Myths uh, podcast and video series. I am incredibly um, happy and pleased to have today as my guest, Professor Jonathan Adler um, of Case Western Law School. And I want to get this right. He is the Johann Verheij Memorial Professor of Law and Director of the Coleman Burke Center for Environmental Law. Jonathan is one of the country's most prominent constitutional law professors, administrative law professors, environmental law professors. He's written seven books, countless articles. Uh, he is on social media everywhere, um, and I'm really happy to have you. Welcome, Jonathan. Good to be here. Thanks. Um, so you and I have a complicated relationship. I think everybody will agree <laughs> on that. Um, we agree on some things, maybe more than people think. Yeah, but we disagree on a lot of things. But one thing we definitely agree on is sports. We're both big sports fans. Yes. So in that context, you made, I think, a lot of predictions about the Supreme Court's term this year, the big cases. And as far as I can tell, your batting average was really good. What did you get right? What did you get wrong? If anything. Okay, sure. So um, uh, I got, I mean, I think the things I got right were the, the easier calls. Um, uh I predicted that the court would hold that the four-cause removal requirement for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was unconstitutional, uh, but would also remedy that in a way that allows the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to keep doing its business. Uh, I predicted that. I predicted that the chief would um, strike down the Louisiana abortion law, um, which he did vote to do. He provided the fifth vote for that. And, and I know you may want to talk about how we understand um, that opinion. I predicted that um, the the religious liberty side of, of a, a, set of, a set of cases um, would prevail. And I became more convinced of that um, once uh, uh, the Bostock opinion came down, um, not only that um, uh, the, the liberal that the liberals prevailed in that case, but when I saw Chief Justice Roberts's vote in that case, I, I was quite confident that um, the religious liberty position would prevail in what those cases. What, what was your prediction in the in the um, uh, Title Seven sexual orientation case? I, I'm not I'm not sure if I was ever on record making a prediction in that case. I, I always thought it was a, a harder case than a lot of people suggested, in part because. In addition to the textualist argument, you have the fact of what I guess you could characterize as non-textualist precedents about how that language applies. And I think figuring out how to do a textualist analysis when you're already kind of boxed in into how you can read the text is actually a harder question than I think a lot of textualists um, uh, acknowledge. And that made it a really hard case. Uh, I thought that that there were good faith arguments one could make uh, either way that are consistent with a general textualist orientation. Um, in terms of cases I got um, totally wrong, um, the DACA case, uh, I did not think it would come out uh, the way it did. I think the chief's vote is explainable. I think it's consistent with things we've seen in the chief justice's uh, a pattern of decisions over his time on the court. Um, but I think that um, you know, as a matter of administrative law, I think the opinion is very problematic. And um, I think the opinion as written for administrative law is problematic. And I thought at the end of the day that that the chief justice and perhaps even uh, Justice Kagan or Breyer 
would recognize that and that that might produce a different outcome. Um, you know, kind of a uh, you want it, you know, you bought it or you, you broke it, you own it type of uh, right. uh, response to the Trump, Trump administration. That's obviously not what they did. Um, and, and so my prediction there was was definitely off. And last question on predictions, the Trump tax cases. Um, so um, I, you know, I, I thought that the DA, the New York DA would 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 prevail. I thought that the court would feel the need to place some limits on Congress's appetites. Um, the thing that I think was most surprising about those cases is that is that in some respects, you have broader unanimity in Mazars than in, in Vance. Yeah. Right? Mazars is formally seven to two. Vance is in some ways five to two. That, I think, is somewhat backwards because I think the Vance case was genuinely an easier case. Um, I think the Mazars case, um, because of the way Congress proceeded uh, and argued its position, was actually a harder case than some people thought. And I think the court, you know, the fact that the court could get seven justices around a set of principles to, to guide that going forward, I, I think was was more surprising um, or was was more surprising given that the court in Vance had a harder time right. coalescing. Um, although, you know, there are points of unanimity in the in the Vance case that I think are not to be uh, not to be undersold. I mean, the 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 justices recognize that absolute immunity um, is is um, uh, beyond off the wall uh, well, in our constitutional Jonathan, structure, um, and I, that's important. My, so my colleague Neil Kinkoff, who's a constitutional law professor, he, he and a progressive one, anti-Trump. He always thought the Vance case was much harder than the other one, and, and I'll tell you why. And I, and I, and I actually, I, I might think so too for this reason. When I was at DOJ um, in the first Bush administration, there were some civil cases against some Bush administration officials coming out of state courts, and mm-hmm. state courts issued subpoenas to these officials. And at the time, I think we took the position that state courts could not subpoena federal officials, at least in their official kind of capacities. Well, sure. And, 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 so, and, and so there's some federalism things going on in the Vance case that I think are pretty serious. And I'm a little surprised you're not more sympathetic about because I, well, the, 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 uh, the idea of state prosecutors running rampant in the future, not just against presidents, but federal officials in general, raises some federalism concerns. I mean, I'm, 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 as you know, I'm more of a formalist than you are, yes. and I think the formal <laughs> distinction between official and non-official conduct is really important. And I would argue, you know, it is it is essential to maintaining the the principle that we have a president, not a king. And if you think about the history of of the the Vance subpoenas, and I think um, the attorney from the New York DA's office. Uh, at oral argument was was really good on some of these points. Yeah. Right. This arose out of a legitimate law enforcement investigation um, about hush money payments and so on. It, like any grand jury investigation, cast a wide net because they weren't sure, well, who's actually the culpable party here? If a right. crime is actually committed or was committed, was it the president? Was it the president's lawyers? Was it the president's fixer? Family? And, and, Family and <laughs> and that to accept the 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 blanket claim of immunity is not merely to shield the president, not merely to shield him in his personal capacity, but is to cast this broad 
you know, bubble over all these other wrongdoers who have no plausible claim. I agree. And with that. I think the court was sensitive to that. And I think, you know, the court leaves open, you know, well, what happens if they think they do need or want to indict the president? And we are aware of the practice of sealed indictments that don't actually get acted upon until some later date. Right. Um, and we're aware that if they tried to indict Donald Trump, they'd have to wait. And I and I don't know about you, but I think that would be the right call. That Me too. If, if, Me too. If we New agree, York we agree on that. They, this is going to be boring for everybody, but yeah, I agree with that. The president can't be indicted well in office. Yeah. So um, I think as long as we maintain those lines, it's an easier case. Okay. Um, so I want to now do a little bit of a digger dive, into a deeper dive into some of these cases, especially Bostock, because that is going to bring us to some points of, I think, disagreement that I think might be interesting. So I, as you can imagine, um, was just offended by all of the discussion about how textualist Gorsuch's opinion was. And the reason I was offended by that commentary is because if you read Kavanaugh's and um, uh, Gorsuch and uh, Alito's dissents, or if you read some lower court opinions on the subject, I don't understand how any reasonable person can walk away from that dispute without saying reasonable people can disagree on this case if we stick to the four corners of the text. So my first question is, if we stick to the four, we're not talking about what they thought, what they didn't think, we're not talking about even precedent, just the four corners of the text, reasonable people can disagree. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I do think reasonable people can disagree, certainly in in the vast majority of cases. Uh, you know, Justice Alito has this hypothetical about the employer that, you know, has the questionnaire and it asks your sexual orientation, but it never asks your sex. And if you right. check the wrong box, sexual orientation, you never get hired. It, it, it's it's an interesting hypothetical. Um, it doesn't apply to any of the actual cases that the court was was considered. And right. to my knowledge, it does not apply to any actual case that's ever been litigated. But it's an interesting hypothetical. So my legal realist view on this, I stated publicly, is... 70%, give or take, of the American people think gays and lesbians should get equal treatment at work along with everybody else, give or take. Different polls, but it's clearly a majority. My second legal realist take is a New York Times headline that says gays and lesbians don't get protection of Title VII was almost unimaginable to me. I, I just did not see that happening. That's Mark Tushnet's test for the Supreme Court. Could it be a New York Times headline? I, do you think this really was a textualist exercise for Gorsuch, or was it a textualist plus some other priors that he didn't reveal exercise for Gorsuch? Well, let me say say two things, right? Yeah. One is um, where you and I will agree is judges are people, right? When you when you yeah. put on the robe, <laughs> you are not suddenly immunized from motivated reasoning and from various um, you know cognitive failings that we all experience. So, um, you know, so can I exclude the fact that Justice Gorsuch, knowingly or not, was influenced by his broader sense of what was just or what was reasonable or what he wanted his name on? Of course, I cannot exclude that. Um, do I think that Justice Gorsuch uh, believes that the text of the statute, at least as constrained by prior precedents that 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 limit how that text can or cannot be interpreted. Do I think that he believes in good faith that he reached the best result? Um, 
Yes, I, I, I think that. Do I do I think um, do parts of his language, as is common in judicial opinions, overstate the degree of certainty right. and, and absolute absoluteness of 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 the the result? Yeah, and and I think that that's an unfortunate tick that I think a lot of uh, judges fall into this unwillingness to recognize that close cases are close cases. Um, Jonathan, but I think in well, good faith, right believes there. it's the better interpretation. I want to ask you about that because that's – my friend Eric Berger in Nebraska has written about this, the rhetoric the Supreme Court uses. Why can't they in big cases that people are going to read I – mean, or not read but be aware of? You know, the American public was somewhat aware of this Title VII case or, or the abortion case or those kinds of cases. Why can't they bring themselves to say this is a very close call. I'm doing the best I can. I'm reading the language of the Constitution the best I can. What is it that makes them stop them from doing that? It's so fresh. Our students would benefit from that, right? Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, I, I compare the, the, the current approach to, say, the opinions of, say, a Justice Robert Jackson, who in some yeah. very tough cases, and even some cases that we're inclined to think are easy, openly wrestling with. I mean, his Korematsu dissent, right? He... Yeah. He reaches what I think you and I would agree is ultimately the right conclusion. But there's a lot of language in there where he says, look, if we actually think about what we, the court, are being asked to do here, we should be awestruck by the the idea of a court telling the military they can't do something. Um, the ultimate test of military action is not whether it is lawful, but whether it is effective. I mean, it, it, things confessions of, of concerns that cut against the outcome that would be almost unheard of in a contemporary opinion. And, and I would agree with you. I, I I would like justices, even in statutory interpretation cases, to acknowledge that um, we can say something is the best interpretation of language while recognizing that, that, that people of goodwill and in good faith may disagree with us. I, my suspicion is that our battles over doctrines like Chevron, where doubt um, uh, uh, triggers other things, uh, probably has conditioned someone like Gorsuch to to want to cabin that doubt. Now, in Bostock, there was no agency that could claim Chevron deference, so right. I, I think the fear is misplaced. But I suspect that might be part of it, right? That if we if we acknowledge that. This text has a best reading, but it's a 60-40 case, not a, you know, not a not a 90-10 case. Well, then what happens when it's the Environmental Protection Agency interpreting a portion of the Clean Water Act? If if that's an equally close call, well, gosh, we're going to have to give Chevron and, and we don't want to do that. And so I, I wonder if that's part of um, uh, part of what's going on, that, that those concerns about the effects of acknowledging closeness in other contexts causes a justice like Gorsuch, who is a Chevron skeptic, to back away from acknowledging clo- closeness. And and for our listeners who may not be experts in administrative law, Chevron basically suggests defer to agencies when there's reasonable interpretations of a statute. Yes, I want to go right. back when to an agency um, implements Jackson. a statute. We have to defer yeah. to their reasonable interpretation of ambiguous language. That's my view of con law. We'll get that in a second. Um, Justice Jackson, you, you mentioned um, Korematsu, but I think steel seizure is even a better example of where in you know. The president's lawyer goes to the Supreme Court and says people are going to die 
if you don't rule for us. You know, it's a pretty dramatic moment in American history. And the court says, sorry, you can't seize the mills anyway. But Jackson says, and this is what I want to talk about, he basically doesn't call it originalism, but he says, will not help here. Divining what the founding fathers thought about this very specific situation. It's like divining the dreams of the pharaohs by Joseph. And it's several paragraphs of humility and modesty about what originalism can bring to the table. And I can't imagine any contemporary conservative justice taking that position, although Alito maybe has made fun of, you know, Scalia a few times. Um, but, but here, so here's my question. Uh, I think you said to me before, are, are you an originalist? I don't think you are. Well, I am, but I'm not. I mean, in That's the sense I that I do, be- <laughs> I, I do believe that where the original public meaning is clear or or reasonably discernible, it should bind. Um, I also think, though, that that things like precedent and established practice are important in a, in a workable system that has been operating now for 200 some years. And so, you know, as a practical matter, I, I think that judges and justices in particular should recognize that not every original outcome is actually still on the table. Um, that's but a great way of, Jonathan, table, that's a great way of putting it. I like the way you put that. Not every original outcome is still on the table because, in Professor David Strauss's you know, terms, Descriptively, not normatively, but descriptively, we have a common law, constitutional law that clearly builds upon hundreds of years of precedence. As a descriptive matter, do you agree with Strauss that we basically have a common law Supreme Court? Um, I think as a descriptive matter, when it works well, that that's pretty close to what we have. Um, and that certainly, we, you know, I think I think that that um, in your conversation with Jack um, uh, two episodes ago, yeah. you know, he pointed out there are parts of the Constitution that, you know, set forth principles that are going to be contested and and developed over time. And um, I think that that's descriptively what has happened. I think we can say the court has done a better job of it or a more reasonable job of it in some areas than in others. But descriptively, I think that is what we've seen. And, and I think the idea that that um, it would be better to have the justices reconsider every constitutional question from ground zero in every case. No, I mean, you, you can't run a railroad that way. And well, well let, um, let's take let, let's take the Espinoza case on this point, on this originalism point. OK, Espinoza is my most hated case this term by, by far. Uh, and part of it is my experience. So at the Department of Justice, I litigated a very big case in San Francisco that was challenging aid the government was voluntarily giving to parochial schools. And from about 1946, 47, I think, Everson versus Board of Education, all the way into Zelman in the 90s, the Supreme Court decided a, more than a dozen cases of what kind of aid can be given to private religious schools by state and federal governments. No one in that litigation ever said the aid must be given. The issue in the Espinoza case, for those who aren't who are following or aren't experts, was once Montana decides to give assistance to private, private non-religious schools, does it have to give the same assistance to private religious schools? And what I've said publicly is I litigated with the lawyer for the United States Catholic Conference, this big case. He was Justice Warren's law clerk. He, he believed in aid to religious schools, you know, his client was the U.S. Catholic Conference. He never dreamed in 19, 
90, that the free exercise clause would ever require the state of Montana to give this aid just because they were helping private schools. Then all of a sudden the court comes up with this rule, this, this, this brand new rule, which, which I know that um, the case four years ago hinted at but didn't go full board. No, if you're a state and you help private schools, you have to help all private schools. And my question to you is, where does that rule come from? Like, I mean, really, where, where, from where does it spring? I, I, I think I think it is uh, uh, a combination of both the First Amendment and and Fourteenth Amendment equal protection values, um, and I think it's developed in a common law way. I mean, you know, one thing I think it's important if we're going to talk about how doctrine develops, it's not a one way ratchet, and um, <laughs> fair enough. I, I think that 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 we saw over a long period of time that as governments started experimenting with things like educational vouchers and so on, that there was some conflict and tension in the prior set of rules, the rules that that you litigated under. And I think like in any sort of common law system, that destabilized the rule because we had tensions and conflicts. The old rule was pinching in ways that we were uncomfortable with. And it's taken the court some time to figure out how, what to do with that. But I think you know, Espinoza is the end result of the pendulum swinging back in a common law way, right? Trinity Lutheran hinted at this principle in a case about playgrounds. Um, uh, but it certainly suggested that the court could reasonably take another step. Uh, and I think that is what happened. I, I happen to think it's a step in a direction that's that is probably a good one, although I will confess I'm not, you know, waist deep in in um, uh, the original uh, uh, public meaning of of the First Amendment. So while I would like the trajectory to be you know, gliding in that direction, I, I'm not going to claim I've done the research to to sure. say that 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 this is what this opinion does. But I do think it's important to see it that as we had a fairly stable rule. We had a range of events that destabilized that rule. And we have seen the court drifting towards a what I think is a new stable rule. And I think that new stable rule in those terms has the same sort of claim as legit, of legitimacy as the old one within this sort of system. So I'm going to ask this question and I'm going to name some people who I hope watch this. And listen to your answer to this question. So Chris Green, if you're out there, uh, Will Bode, Steve Sachs, these are all people I've been battling with for years about originalism. If you're out there, when you say it's kind of like how common law develops, you know, I think you described it incredibly accurately. What is the space between your description of how we got to the only thing you can give to religious schools as an establishment clause matter is textbooks, which was the old rule. It's the only thing you can give. No matter what you give to anybody else, only textbooks. Then you can give anything you give to the other non-religious schools. Then whatever you give to non-religious schools, you must give to religious schools. What's the space between your description of that as common law, decision-making, and living constitutionalism? Well, I think that that um, in a when we're talking about a, a common law constitutionalism, we are talking about the court trying to ground its decision in the traditions and precedents uh, of the court as constrained by uh, various constitutional authorities. 
I think the the most egregious examples of living constitutionalism aren't really doing that. Um, give me uh, one. Give, give me one. And are in fact um, breaking those bounds. Give me one. Uh, I, oh, I'm sorry. Give me Did an example want? of an egregious example no, of no, living no, constitution. I think, I think um, if one looks at Griswold and one compares the majority opinion with Justice Harlan's opinion, I would argue Justice Harlan's opinion is a plausible common law constitutionalism um, opinion. Among other things, it, it rests on some premises about our legal system that are plausible. For example, um, the emphasis it places on marriage as an institution that pre-exists our uh, public law order. Whereas... Penumbras and emanations is, gosh, I'm trying to find a way to justify this result that I really like. And, I, and so I, I point to Griswold because it's, it's we're, we can see different ways of reaching an outcome. One that I think is more legitimate, the Harlan opinion. One that I think is less opinion. Um, and that's interesting, and, really interesting that you say this because – when I teach uh, those cases and I teach Harlan's concurring opinion in Griswold, which was the contraceptive case from Connecticut, for those listening, um, Scalia targeted Harlan's opinion not by name but by quote many, many times because he hated what Harlan said about reasoned judgment. So I, I, give me a minute here to, to indoctrinate the, the, the non-experts. The issue was could Connecticut – a ban all of its contraceptives, basically, and 49 states didn't, and Connecticut was an outlier. So in that sense, it was a pretty not important case in that sense. But it was an important case doctrinally. And Harlan was concerned about this idea of substantive due process, right? He was concerned about it. It gives judges a lot of discretion. But he said we can limit that discretion if they rely on federalism, separation of powers, precedent, our nation's traditions, and reasoned judgment. And in Scalia's dissent in Casey, the big abortion case, he targets that phrase exactly and says the best we can do is say reason judgment, and that's just the preferences of the justices. I agree with, I, I agree with Scalia. Do you? No. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, I, on most issues, I'm probably a bigger fan of Justice Scalia yes. than you are. But yeah. uh, the, what I think is his biggest failing is at the end of the day— uh, he cared more about a rigid, bright-line rule that would constrain the discretion of lower court judges than he did about getting it right. And, he admitted that. Um, he, he admitted that. Right. And, yeah. and, I, and I think that's wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I understand that lower court judges um, may sometimes make a mess of things because, um, as we already established, judges are people. Um, they will make mistakes. Power will go to their head, whatever. Um, but the reality is, is that our legal system doesn't always provide the bright lines that Justice Scalia wanted. Um, I I agree with him that, you know, as a formalist, I, I like bright line rules, but that preference should not push a judge to create a bright line rule where, in fact, we don't have one. And there are provisions of the Constitution that even when understood in terms of their original public meaning, don't yield the the purely determinate bright line rule that Justice Scalia wanted. And so I think the reason he went after Harlan is, is that he wants a bright line rule. And Harlan's opinion wasn't was saying, look, there are questions, especially questions kind of on the margins of what the the founders and, and authors of the of the of the 
1787 Constitution and the amendments were thinking about. And, you know, they were thinking about quartering of troops. They weren't thinking about contraception and, and marriage. And so we are necessarily going to be operating uh, in, in a, in a, on a terrain with fewer guideposts. And we have to be open. We have to acknowledge that. We have to be wary that that creates greater temptations for judges to substitute their own preferences for the proper legal outcome. But we shouldn't pretend as if we are on different terrain. And, and so that's why I disagree with Scalia is because he's trying to fit the Constitution we have into a box that he that he wants. And in some cases, it fits in that box, but there are areas where it doesn't. And that just means we've got to do harder work. So I think we should we should um, tell who's ever watching or listening that in Harlan's opinion that we're talking about, he was defending striking down uh, Connecticut's contraception law as applied to married couples anyway. And in several paragraphs, he talks about the privacy of the home. And in those paragraphs, he makes it clear that the state can prohibit consensual homosexuality, homosexual sex in those private places. So, so I, I, his value judgments at the time, his priors, were, yes, married couples need to have a constitutional right to use contraception, but two people of the same gender don't have a constitutional right, which they do today, to have private consensual sex in the privacy of their own home. And I'm trying to figure out how that's anything other than Justice Harlan's personal political preferences. I mean, all that is, is and I'm not criticizing Harlan because in 1963, no one thought that probably gays had a private you know, right. But it is his preferences. It's not the law. It's just what he thought was right or wrong. That's my opinion about it. You disagree, I take it. Well, um, look, you know, I, I can't get into Harlan's head. Um, and you I know, like I, we don't. So, so do I think that his opinion um, can largely be justified by an appeal to the principles that he claimed he was relying upon, yes, I think it can be. Now, do I think every particular of every sentence um, is, is immune from challenge? Of course not. But um, I do think his notion that in our legal tradition, um, that, that marriage as an institution it was, was a premise in some respects, in the sense that, that it was part of the pre-existing legal order and perhaps privacy in the home was as well. I think there is a plausible claim there. Right? Yeah. There is a plausible claim that that the state has an interest in policing public displays of sexuality uh, within certain realms that it doesn't in private. I'm saying what can be justified legally, not not what I would support. As you know, I'm yeah, I'm fairly libertarian. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 there are few laws of that sort that I that I think are are are, are good laws. Um, so I want to ask, wait, so I want to ask you then, and I will confess, if you answer this question, yes, it will be the headline for this podcast. <laughs> do you believe in substantive due process? Uh, do I believe in substantive due process? Well, that's what Griswold um, was. Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't characterize uh, Justice Harlan's opinion as what I think of as substantive due process. Um, I, I would characterize it as, it as something else. I mean, what we call much not all, much of what we call substantive due process, at least as seen as Harlan's opinion in Griswold, as seen in 
Rehnquist's opinions in Glucksburg, I wouldn't actually characterize as due process for a whole bunch of reasons, including the path dependence of decisions, um, including the court's unwillingness to confront slaughterhouse and so on. We call things due process that I just don't think are due process. Um, let me ask. Uh, okay, so let me ask a different respect, question. Do you believe the court legitimately finds and enforces unenumerated constitutional rights? Uh, I think that yes. Uh, in, in that, I think that the original public meaning of, especially the Fourteenth Amendment, presupposes that there are rights that are ours that pre-exist the the formation of government of the government that no government has been given the, the 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 rightful authority to violate and i think you know you know to 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 to, to beat up on scalia again right the reason why scalia didn't want to correct the the understanding of the 14th amendment and locate those rights in the privileges or immunities clause where i think for the most part they are is because that would open up, you know, that would open Pandora's box because we have this this phrase and we don't have decades and decades of, of precedent trying to constrain it and confine it and keep it locked away. And he was afraid of that. Justice Thomas, who, you know, I we probably disagree. We probably disagree on Justice Thomas more than we disagree, on, uh, disagree upon Scalia. Justice Thomas, I think, for the most part, is a better originalist than Scalia was. Justice Thomas's view on privileges or immunities is, look, that's where unenumerated rights are. Maybe that's not where you would have put them. Maybe it's, that's not where I would have put them. But insofar as exist, that's where they are. And so if we're going to protect them, let's let's locate them where they belong and let's do the hard work of figuring out what the, the constraints are on that. And, and you know, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, will the court ever quite say that? I don't know. But I, I think that's the correct way to do it. Okay. I, I've always thought if the court is going to find unenumerated rights, and, you know, I probably don't think that I don't want them to, but if they are, the Ninth Amendment does the job just fine, and Randy Barnett's work on that is fine. I'm not saying it should do that, but of all the places, I think the Ninth is just as good as anything else. Um, I was going to move to your, your op-ed in the New York Times about Justice Roberts, but you triggered me, I think probably intentionally, <laughs> by talking about Justice Thomas. So, um, as you know, I, I've written a lot suggesting with case citations, that the vast, well, almost all of Justice Thomas's opinions in big cases are consistent with his priors and his preferences, and many of those don't have a really good originalist basis. There may be some plausible originalist arguments. That That's my view. Do you have a, I mean, there has to be a couple, big Justice Thomas opinions that would be obviously inconsistent with what we think to be his priors? I think what we're seeing from Justice Thomas on severability uh, actually could cut very strongly against his priors. He has suggested that when it comes to severability, uh, we need to look at the originalist understanding of that. Um, we need to abandon the writ of erasure fallacy. We need to, to constrain remedies to what's properly before the court and within the court's jurisdiction. And insofar as we think Justice Thomas has libertarian sympathies that call for dismantling much of the modern federal government, well, if, we, if, you, if you take that approach to severability seriously, which he in now several opinions has suggested we should, well, that means the libertarians are going to be fighting with one, one arm tied behind their back. Um, well, well, hold on. So that, hold on. Hold on. I have that, to interrupt. 
two things about that. I don't think 1991, when he was confirmed, Republicans were in favor of dismantling the administrative state in the way some conservatives and libertarians are today. So I don't think, I'm not sure what his prior is on that. More importantly, though, even if you're right about what you just said, I still want a case from the past that, that, that involved a holding where he decided something against his priors or against the priors of the Republican Party. Now, the, the Texas license plate case might be one of them, but leaving that, I'm not, I don't think so. So Criminal give forfeiture? me a case where he ruled against his priors. Criminal forfeiture? I can never pronounce that game. It's, it's uh, ba- yeah. ba- ba- Bakakajian. I, I, I never pronounced that case okay. correctly. So but, that um, might be one. Would you concede there are um, less than five? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure his Eighth Amendment jurisprudence is in line with his priors. Um, I, I don't think that Justice Thomas is in his heart a, a, a cruel, bloodthirsty man. Um, See, I, I do. That, That's a difference. Well, OK, yeah. but you know, I, 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 I don't I don't accept that. And and. And certainly the folks that I know that know him quite well don't 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 view him that way. Oh, no, no. Um, Let me be clear. Let me be clear. He he comes to law schools. He won't come to mine, but he comes to law schools. He's been to Georgia, Emory, won't come to Georgia State. But leaving that aside, he comes to law schools and everything I've heard, polite, funny, great person to have in the room. There is another side of him that I think some um, critical race theorists have talked about, where he had a, you know, a horrifically hard upbringing. I mean, he's a, you know, I don't, his grandfather's lawn was burned with a cross. I mean, all kinds of terrible things. And there, when you, what you're saying, you think, you know, cold-blooded is, you're right. I didn't mean to say he was cold-blooded. I think there's a rage inside of him that makes him not sympathetic to people. And his Eighth Amendment jurisprudence would be consistent with that. Because he thinks nothing is cruel and unusual punishment. He would, he would, he would find nothing cruel and unusual. Well, he he thinks that the Eighth Amendment is about uh, preventing the state from imposing a punishment on you that is intended to uh, inflict pain or, or suffering, uh, as opposed to being a limitation on incidental pain or suffering, which inevitably comes along with punishment. Now, I, I don't know if that's correct or not. I think that that is a coherent, plausible view, and it allows the state to do things that I think he would find objectionable. You know, his vote in city of Arlington, I think, was uh, contrary to his priors. Um, you know, I think that, that that you can find them. And and um, I don't also don't purport to know uh, all his priors. I do know that he has said that um, the case that he found most difficult in his time on the court was um, uh, from the cases involving um, Haitian refugees and whether they, they uh, would be turned back or not. And he has made comments suggesting that um, civil forfeiture case um, involving um, it's Bennis, uh, the case where um, uh, the woman's the wife owns the car, but the husband's using it for for a prostitute and the car gets taken. He was in the majority in that case. I think he has suggested that in retrospect uh, that he thinks that was wrong. Um, And I don't think that's purely a a function of his priors, I think. Um, okay, but uh, for the record, on abortion, affirmative action, guns, the front page New York Times cases, he's been very consistent in how he's voted. Um, I, want, I, would, I want to talk more about Thomas, but I, I can't because we're running out of time. And we've got to talk about Justice Roberts, who is far more important to this country right now than Justice um, Thomas. So you wrote this up in the New York Times. And there are a couple of things I agree with and a couple of things I disagree with. But let's agree on one thing, being the chief justice and the swing vote. 
gives him enormous power. Yes? Right. Explain that. Why is that? Well, it means that that he is in a position in some cases at least to say to a block of four justices, you want the outcome you want, you're going to have to make some concessions. It means that he, uh, whenever he is in the majority, he decides who writes the opinion. And as we know, especially given the common law aspects of the way the law operates in, in and as well um, how Supreme Court cases are interpreted and applied by lower court by lower courts, the power to write the opinion is very powerful, the power to decide who's going to write it, knowing that how the opinion explains its rationale is going to have this broader effect in a wider range of cases. That's a lot of power. And, you know, this past term, he dissented twice. Yeah. Uh, so he was in the majority in 97 percent of, of all cases. Yeah. Um, that's that's pretty, you know, that's that's pretty remarkable. That, that's Kennedy-esque. Yes. Um, uh, and um, it certainly means that he is, for for the time being, the most influential justice on the court. And um, that means we have to pay a lot of attention to him. I think he's the most influential judge in the world, but leaving that aside. OK, so we agree on that. Uh, Kennedy was never chief justice. And so, so he did have a lot of power. But I think this is more the last chief justice to be the swing vote was Hughes in 36, maybe. And that didn't last very long. So, um, you know, this is reportedly one of Chief Justice Roberts's heroes. Okay, you also argue in this New York Times op ed, which I would recommend people read, um, that Justice Roberts's prime calling card is not. I I like the way you did this. The balls and strikes thing we're going to throw out the window because we all know that's not true. But he did promise to go slowly. He did promise to be an incrementalist, and you defend that in this piece. Um, how deeply ingrained do you think that is in Justice Roberts? That he's going to, whatever he's going to do, he's going to go slowly when he does it. Mo- most of the time, there's no, no one's 100 percent, but most of the time, well, yeah, right? It's it's not just slowly. I mean, you know, the the in the closing of the piece, I say we you know we talk about balls and strikes. The important part of what what he said in his confirmation hearing is that no one goes to the game to watch the umpire. Right. If we're talking about some football playoff game and we're arguing over whether the ref got a pass interference call correctly uh, or, you know, if which we're one in are you referring to, only, Jonathan? <laughs> right, right. Or if we're in quarantine and the only sports on TV is is mixed martial arts and we're talking about did the referee, you know, call the, the TKO too too soon. Right. That diminishes our appreciation of of the sport. The game wasn't a good game if we're talking about the referee. And that's his view of judging. And I believe it is his view. Now, at the end of the piece, I suggest it's a bit naive, perhaps. It's a bit outdated. Um, uh, but I do think that if one looks at, at at both the way he describes what he does and what he does, it is the most powerful, descriptive, and predictive account of what he's doing. And I, and I emphasize predictive because we can always say after the fact, you know, Chief Justice Roberts did this to maximize X. Well, if we're not generating able to generate predictions about how he's going to act. I'm, I'm not sure it's a useful theory. And I think, you know, he his minimalism is both going slow. It's where possible narrowing um, the court's jurisdiction, narrowing the, the scope of the holdings. Right. I mean, it's of a, you know, his his desire to not overturn precedent, to, to move it slowly, to strike down as little of federal laws as possible is of a piece with his desire to not open any courthouse doors that have, that were not opened by his predecessors. Okay, so two um, qu- I think that's mostly fair. 
Two questions about it. We agree Shelby County and Voting Rights Act is kind of, even though there was a case before, there was no chance Congress, there was a case before Justice Roberts struck down the Voting Rights Act where he warned Congress, this is coming if you don't do something. But he he knew Congress couldn't do it. So Well, but the important thing about that case, right, for his method is, in Namudno, the prior case, court was unanimous in believing or in, in in ascribing to or, or signing on to opinions that claimed the Voting Rights Act presented serious constitutional problems. And so... Well, hold on. Know, I think... Stop right, right one, there. Eight justices joined, were on his opinion, and then one said, we should throw it out now. And I think that's an important predicate to the Shelby County opinion. Chief Justice Roberts could say accurately, every justice on this court is on record saying... Section 5 raises serious constitutional problems. Well, we don't know, Jonathan. And after um, the biography of Justice Roberts by Joan, I never spelled, get her name right, Biscott. Um, So we now have reason to believe that Justice Roberts in some way pressured Kagan and Breyer to, wait, wait, to join the Medicaid part of of NFIB versus Bills. I I always thought that. I thought the day of the opinion was, because Justice Breyer is the most— pro-Congress justice of all time, for him to sign on to that Medicaid opinion was crazy. What you don't know, and I don't know, is did Roberts use some pressure tactics on the liberals in the pre-Shelby County case to get them to sign on? Because that is his method. He has done this before. The other thing about Roberts I wanted to ask you about is um, in parents in in this very first big case, an affirmative action case out out of Louisville and Seattle, he ended it by saying the way to stop discriminating discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race, to which even Justice Kennedy said that's not enough to decide these hard cases. Shelby County completely distorts a 1965 Supreme Court case that rejected equal state sovereignty. And they, he, Roberts could have overturned that case, but he distorts it. Which leading me to my big and last question, because we're out of ta- time and this has been great, but I have a last question. You said when predicting what Justice Roberts is going to do in the future, it's a good bet. We're both sports fans. You would bet he's going to go slowly, incrementally, and we'll take that into account. I agree with with that as a general proposition. Jonathan, that's not law. That's Justice Roberts' views about how courts should decide things irrespective, really, of what the actual text or history or or even— common law heritage is because he wants to go slow. Thomas wants to go fast most of the time. Um, that difference is not law. It's, it's something else. It's, 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 it's not, and I, is it, a, and you're saying it's a way we'll predict what he'll do. So I'm curious why you don't agree more with me about legal realism when we just agreed that the most powerful judge in the United States, a big part of his decision-making process is a prior separate from the law. Well, I, I, I think our difference is that I would I would characterize or I would I would um, define the categories I think differently than you, right? So Chief Justice Roberts's approach is not the, the approach that I would adopt were I a judge. At least I don't I don't think I I don't think it's the approach I would adopt if I were if I were a judge. But that won't happen, so we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> it. it you know, there is a long tradition of believing that judges, as judges, should adopt what are often referred to as the passive virtues, 
that that the the in Hamilton's words, um, exercising judgment as opposed to will requires thinking about one's institutional role and that that is inherent in the nature of a of judging and a, a properly operating judiciary. And uh, he happens to elevate those sorts of things above what we might think of as more traditional or harder, kind of harder, hard isn't hard versus soft, harder uh, sources of law. Um, he elevates them more than I would, I think. Um, but I don't think that means it's just his preferences, right? Because these aren't his political preferences. It's about his understanding of what it means to judge. And um, I think that, you know, in, in, when I write about him and I've written a bunch about him, I'm trying to say, okay, how do I fairly characterize what he's doing in terms that he would understand as a prelude for then saying, okay, is this a good or bad way to judge? Um, so I'm not, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I like going slow. I like, I like judges doing less. So I'm, you know, but let, let's, let's end this with, I want to talk about other things in sports and I'm going to have you back, but <laughs> you're, um, I've been criticized by a lot of people in social media for my, um, feeling that judge, retired judge Posner has judging correctly because he's the most honest judge I've ever seen. And he, and, and, and he just puts his values down, and then you know, unless they're blocked by precedent, he enforces them. A lot of people hate his pragmatic approach. I'm not defending it here. But they call it illegitimate. You know, they say he doesn't care about the law. But I don't view Posner, this is the question I'm asking you, Posner's pragmatic approach and Roberts's incremental approach, or, or even Justice Thomas's I would call faux originalist, you would call originalist, uh, maybe, approach. All three of those, I think, are a legitimate way to judge. I, I don't think they're right or wrong, and they're all the same. They're all the same. None of them are tied to any legal, legal thing we can get our hands around. And so is Roberts any more of a legitimate judge than Posner? Because I know you're not a, you're not a Posner fan. But yet you, you, admit, you, you agree that Roberts is going to see cases through his filter of going slowly, whereas Posner sees it pragmatically. What's the difference other than you agree with one not? Actually, you don't. You agree with neither one, right? So what's the difference? Tell me the well, difference between Posner and Roberts. I, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to caricature Posner, but I think Posner's view is what should the rule be? How can I justify it? I don't, I don't think that's Roberts' approach. And I think a case like June Medical Services in some respects, demonstrates the point, right? I, I believe Chief Justice Roberts, in his heart, is pro-life. I believe he thinks abortion is a grievous wrong, and he believes that that in a just society, we would find a way to reduce it, if not eliminate it. I believe that that is his core value. I believe also that he thinks that states should, at the very least, be allowed to restrict it. He almost says as much in, in that opinion. But yet he votes to strike down the law. Why? Because I think he has a sense of what he should do as a judge, which is a different sort of judgment than his view of what should the ultimate outcome be. This is also why I reject the, the claim that people make that Chief Justice Roberts is playing the long game, because I think his preference is to act in what he sees as the proper judicial way now, 
even if that means he never wins in terms of getting the ultimate legal result he wants, well, because Jonathan, he knows that justice might die or whatever else. He might never get a second bite at the apple. When he writes them would know, he doesn't know that there's going to be Shelby County. He maybe hoped there would be, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know he's going to have an opportunity to truly overturn the whole women's health in some future case. But he feels that in the here and now. Yeah, I, I, I disagree. I think he did know Shelby County was coming. And if you had to bet something important, I, I know you're a great dad. If you were to, if, I, mean, I really want to make this clear. If you had to bet on something important, the, the, the future of your children, will Roberts eventually vote to either overturn Casey altogether or shred it to non-existence? Or he's going to keep Casey as it is. What would your bet be? I think he is going to keep a constrained but 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 faithful interpretation of Casey so long as he is the fifth vote. So long he as he is the fifth vote. What, what do you mean by that? The, yeah, well, I don't think he will be the fifth vote to um, uh, reject, say, the the uh, Justice Kennedy's understanding of Casey circa 2008. Um, but he would be the sixth uh, vote. Uh, I, he, I think he would be the sixth vote. I don't think he'll be the fifth vote. Okay. And I think, and, and I think it's because he uh, feels He's making a that, political calculation about that. I don't think it's purely a political calculation. I think it's also a view of, of you know, how you move slowly. How do, how do you build the case against Casey that um, was built against um, Abood, for example, or uh, and that I think the longer he's been on the court, the more he has felt that you've got to spend more time building the case to overturn precedent. Um, I think that um, if you were to ask Chief Justice Roberts, he might say that Shelby County was the right result, but maybe it was too soon, um, that it was too quick. I think he might say that. I think parents involved, I'm not sure he'd write an opinion like that, certainly not as the fourth or fifth vote anymore. And I agree. And and I think and again, you know, I think abortion is the interesting example of that, because if if my claim about what he believes in his heart is correct, right, that he is a that he is a, a, a Catholic who accepts church doctrine, that means he is willing to allow something that he thinks is profoundly wrong to persist for a longer period of time because his obligation and his oath requires it. And we can agree or disagree about whether or not that's the right judgment to make, um, whether he's trying to push, whether he wants the law to evolve in the right direction. But I think that he believes that, um, that that is his obligation. And I think that that will predict his behavior. And um, yeah, that, that, so my only point was that prior that he has, I, th- I, I agree with you substantially. I don't think he'd write parents involved today the way he did anyway. I don't think he would do that. Um, but not because he dis- not because that wasn't a fair reflection of his person of his priors, right? Um, I think the longer he's been on the court, the more he has come to believe that his political priors, his policy priors, need to take second fiddle to his his conception of what it means to be a good judge. And and and, I'll, I, I, and Chris Green, if you're out there, I'll end this by saying that um, none of that has to do with originalism at all, and so. The three most influential justices of the Supreme Court from 1981 to today, I think, do we agree, are O'Connor, Kennedy, and Roberts. Every con law decision 
invite, needed O'Connor and Kane. Okay. And neither, none of those three have any use for originalism. I'll give you the final word on that last point. I think is a descriptive account um, that that is that that is that that is largely true. I I, I don't I think of the three Chief Justice Roberts um, feels the gravitational pull of original public meaning more than Kennedy and O'Connor. I'm not sure whether that's because of um, a core belief that he has that it is correct, or rather that is a function of the broader legal environment in which he's operating. But but yeah, we wouldn't call any of them to be originalists in terms of their their, their lodestar when it comes to decision making. And yet, if if this court stays the same for five more years, six more years, Kennedy, O'Connor, and Roberts for you know four or five decades would have been the one the votes you need on the court to get where you want to go, and you wouldn't appeal to them through originals. To the best of my knowledge, Roberts has never self-identified as an originalist. I don't think. I think, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, you know, there are there are contexts. I mean, you know, the, it, we are seeing, we saw it this term, we're going to see it going forward, cases in which Gorsuch is the swing rather than Roberts. Yeah. Um, we've seen a couple with Thomas. Um, we, we've seen some with Kavanaugh. The only one, we, we've only half seen one with Alito. He's not really ever a swing. No. But if the goal is to get Thomas or Gorsuch to go with the liberals— Originalist arguments will often work, and perhaps for strategic reasons, the liberals are going to let Thomas or Gorsuch write that opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, hold on. Thomas has gone with four liberals once, I think, and that was the Texas license plate case. I think once. Uh, I may be wrong. No, there, there's some others. I mean, the criminal forfeiture case that Five, I mentioned four? earlier is one. Um, it's an older case. Um, okay, so let's uh, say there, there were are four. some other cases. Um, but but Gorsuch looks like it looks like Gorsuch is going to do it more than Thomas uh, uh, does. Um, and it will often be on textualist, where there are plausible textualist or originalist arguments. Okay. Jonathan, we could, I think I could talk to you for three more hours, but this was great. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I hope people found it interesting. I did. Um, and I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Uh, happy to do it whenever you like. Thanks.